Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century, join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Good day Hmm. to you, dear listener. Uh, it's the Gravity Podcast. I'm uh, Ben. I'm here with Matt. Hey, Matt. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Uh, Christy's not with us today. I think she's on vacation. We never know. We never know what Christy's up to. She's an enigma. Well, she lives far away. Yes, she does. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but um, I, my guess is she's still on vacation. I think I think that that might be true. So yeah. good for Christy for being on vacation. Matt, you just got back from vacation. I did. I went to Disney World. Yeah. For the many times. For the the 20th time. Yeah, many th time. I can't, I have Uh, lost count. Is it still, I've heard rumors that that place is the happiest place on earth. Is that still true? Uh, The only person that's happy is the CEO of Disney because he's making (laughs) incredible money off of people seeking the happiest place on earth. Yes. Um, Yes. Yes. Yeah, I don't know, man. Disney is we're compli- it's a complicated relationship. I spent about 10 years kicking against the goads, you know, mm-hmm. fighting it, grinding my gears against going. Mm-hmm. But um making my fuss. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. now I've just learned to embrace it, you yeah. know, trying yeah. to find a way to just find some joy within it. So yeah. that's what I that's what I focus on. Yeah, I think that's there. good. Longtime listeners of our podcast will will know about your complicated relationship with Disney. Oh boy! Um, but anyway, um, good good to hear. Um, so, uh, what do you what do you got for us this morning, Matt? Do you have a recommendation or a or a link or an article or something you read? What yes, you yes. So I am finishing um, Stranger Things with my son. The TV show? Yeah, this nice. t- the TV show. I mean, I know this is a few years old, but I, I watched the first two seasons with my wife, and she got really creeped out by it, and it was like too scary it's to watch creep- in the yeah. evening before bed, so we stopped watching it. <laughs> then my son turned 15, and I was like, okay, I think you can probably watch this with me. And we're yeah. one episode from the end of it. Mm-hmm. It's a two-hour and 22-minute episode, though, so i uh, got to find an that, It's like, I remember that. I remember the last episode. Are they making more? I think they're making more. Is season five coming out? I think. I mean, these something. The or, kids or in the show are going to have their own kids. I mean, they're getting old. No, they're going to be so old. Yeah. But um, uh, you know, know, if you, uh, it's like a PG thirteen plus kind of show. So, uh, and it's scary, but uh, it's campy, and all yeah. the best. So when I think about like the eighties, and I think about like Indiana Jones and Goonies and mm-hmm. all these campy shows, um. I'm actually, when I go back and watch them, I'm actually really, really bothered by a lot of, a lot of like, you know, there's blatant racism and blatant fat shaming and things like that that are in these shows. Well, uh, Stranger Themes uh, may offend you for other reasons, right? There's cursing and there's drug use and there's, um, you know, teenagers uh, sowing their wild sexual oats. But I'm finding, I'm finding 2024, Matt, is more bothered by the racism and fat shaming of 80s films mm-hmm. than he is by, you know, uh, the crass language and yeah. other things of 2024 Stranger Things. Yeah. I don't know. Stuff that gets the content warnings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, so, I don't know. Uh, it's a way for me to share like 80s campy nostalgia, mm-hmm. like buddy kind of films with yeah. my son. I don't know. I recommend that as long as that kind of stuff doesn't uh, get your dander up. Yeah. Or as long as it's not too scary. There are, like for your wife, which is totally understandable to me, actually. uh, There are a few. I'm like uh, sensitive to some of that stuff. I know you are. Um, uh, And so as well. And so there were a few episodes that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm kind of creeped out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's quite creepy. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. Anyway, that's my recommendation. I got to finish it. Stranger Things. It's scary. It's funny. 
it's like a campy teen kid, teenage buddy yeah. against the world, and the Russians are bad. Like the good old days, you know what I mean. <laughs> like the good old when, days. Well, they're kind of, they're kind of. I mean, you know, the good old days are back in in many ways. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, um, very cool. Uh, I think the the recommendation or the the article uh, that I wanted to just mention to our listeners yeah. is something I put in the curated links this oh. week, which is you can join our community to find those at this point. Um, but it is, uh, it's Chris Green, who's been on the podcast a few times, uh, but he, he quotes an extensive article um, from Rowan Williams. Oh, yeah. Rowan Williams was interviewed by Philip Pullman. So super interesting exchange about art and religion. Philip Pullman is an atheist. Um, Rowan Williams is obviously a Christian theologian and uh, former bishop. Yeah. Uh, not an atheist. Nope, not by any means. So anyway, super interesting conversation about what makes art art. And what makes art Christian? And he posted it in, um, and I, I just love, Rowan Williams is one of my favorite thinkers and authors in general. And so I'll read anything that he has written or said. Um, but he posted it in response to this thing that was going around the internet where um, there was a conversation that um, Bono, the lead singer of U2, was, he was reflecting on a conversation he had with Franklin Graham. Hmm. Did you read about no. this? So here's the conversation. So this isn't the um, this is the brief uh, recount of the conversation that Bono had with Franklin Graham that prompts Chris to post this uh, reflection from Rowan Williams. Anyway, um, so Franklin Graham says to Bono, "You you really love the Lord?" And Bono says, "Yep." Okay, you do. Are you saved? Yep, and saving. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't laugh. Franklin doesn't laugh. No laugh. Have you given your life? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Oh, I know Jesus Christ, and I try not to use him just as my personal Savior. But you know, yes. <laughs> Isn't this great? <laughs> and Franklin Graham comes back and he's like, well, why aren't your songs um, Christian songs? And, you, and Bono replies, they are. And Franklin's like, well, some of them are. And Bono's like, well, what do you mean? Franklin says, well, why don't they, why don't we know their Christian songs? And Bono says, they're all coming from a place, Franklin. Look around you. Look at the creation. Look at the trees. Look at the sky. Look at these kinds of verdant hills. They don't have a sign up that says, praise the Lord, or I belong to Jesus. They just give glory to Jesus. That's the exchange. Isn't that interesting? Oh my gosh! Can I just name a couple things yeah. about that I, I I recognize about this? Um, the first is um, I know Bono's been trying for a while, but I think he, this he may be ready to break through. <laughs> I mean, if he if he keeps on this trajectory, Ben, I think twenty twenty four is his is year. What you mean? I think twenty twenty four is his year. Could be famous. Yeah. Um, also, 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 notice. Okay, if we ever use words like non anxious. Mm-hmm. Notice how thoroughly unconcerned Bono is with pleasing or appeasing yeah. or appealing to Franklin Graham. Mm-hmm. Just notice mm-hmm. how uh, utterly unafraid of Franklin he is mm-hmm. and undisturbed by Franklin he is. Yeah. Franklin keeps trying to frame Bono's entire existence in this really tight uh, box. Yep that Franklin and others have created mm-hmm. and used and want to mandate it is the only box for being a Christian in. Right. Yeah. And Bono doesn't bristle. Right. He doesn't uh, respond with the same energy. Mm-hmm. He's, he's delightfully untethered to Franklin's, what I would call a supremacy game. Yeah. And it's just refreshing. Isn't it? That's what I found as well. I was just it's like- It's so refreshing. It's so refreshing that there's not this, yeah, it's, it's not anxious about that question. Like that is, that's the question Franklin's anxious about. Yes. He's anxious about which team are you on? What, like, how do I categorize you? How, how do I co-opt your existence into my frame? Right? 
And Bono is just, it's a great example of just what you're saying. There's not, he doesn't meet the, with the same energy. He doesn't, he doesn't come after Franklin in a way. He, he just, you know, he's happy to answer Franklin's questions, but he's also happy to kind of burst his bubble a bit. Really, yeah. I really think it's an interesting exchange. Yeah. So anyway. It's wonderful. Yeah. We'll post, um, that'll be, the, there's a, it's actually a picture that somebody posted online of that conversation. So I don't know if it's from an article or I actually don't know where it's from, but I'll post that hmm. in the show notes and also a link to this article that Chris Green then posted um, kind of in response to that, um, which actually has some, some really lovely quotes from Rowan Williams as he interacts with, a, with an atheist uh, about art and Christian art um, because uh, you know, that, that's kind of what Franklin is getting at when he's like, why aren't you, why don't we know their Christian songs is like, there's a, uh, there's something about Christian art there that um, I think provokes a really interesting question. Yeah. And Rowan Williams has some uh, very wise things to say about it. So. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's yeah. uh, get into the interview for today. Matt, who are we talking to? Julie Faith Parker. And we're talking to her about her book, Eve is an Evil, Feminist Readings of the Bible to Upend Our Assumptions. Um, she was awesome. And her book is uh, simply reading the scriptures, paying attention to women as a woman, and seeing what's revealed. Now, um, this has always been done, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, except usually it's just been reading the Bible uh, as a man, paying attention to men. Uh, and so mm-hmm. this is such a wonderful a creative experiment and reclaiming dynamics and themes and patterns in scripture that we often miss. And so this is a part of our how to read the Bible again yes. series. Yep. yep. And this will be just uh, for our listeners who've been tracking with us, this will be the last episode that we have that's explicitly part of this series um, that we've been, that we've been going through. Um, we've, we've had the interview, we've had the opportunity to interview lots of people and discover lots of things and think some new thoughts about all this. And we're not going to quit yeah. doing that. We actually have a few more episodes. Um, Can't we've, stop, won't stop. Yeah. Right. It'll, uh, so next week's episode won't be in this series, but we do have um, two more interviews booked with people who are going to be talking about the Bible. And so we're going to keep thinking about this with y'all and with each other. Um, it's actually Pete ends just to, if you, if you don't subscribe, this is a great reason to subscribe is we're going to be interviewing Pete ends in a, in a, a month or two something like that. Mm. And then uh, Terry Wildman, who wrote the First Nations translation of the New Testament, or and we're going to be interviewing him as well. Yeah. So anyway, those are two more interviews coming up that maybe we'll think of those as epilogues or yeah. codas to the series, but um, mm. this will Sequels. be the last episode in a row All right. where we talk about this. So should we get into it? Anything else we yeah. need to say? No, that's it. I think we've said, we've said enough. Yeah. Enough for this week. Enough from us. Let's get on with, uh, with Julie, Julie Faith Parker. The Reverend Dr. Julie Faith Parker joins us today on the Gravity Podcast. She lives in New York City, where she is a visiting scholar at Union Theological Seminary and biblical scholar in residence at Marble Collegiate Church. She has taught biblical studies at General Theological Seminary, Trinity Lutheran Seminary, and also at New York Theological Seminary, Seminary, where her students were incarcerated in Sing Sing Prison. Today, we're chatting about her new book, Eve Isn't Evil, Feminist Readings of the Bible to Upend Our Assumptions. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. Yeah, it's a delight and honor for us to have you here. Uh, We're going to talk about your book and feminist readings of scripture, but first I want to ask you about teaching the Bible to those incarcerated at Sing Sing Prison. I wonder if you could reflect a bit off the cuff here on what you've learned about not only the Bible, but teaching the Bible from those, from your time doing that. 
Thanks, Matt. It was such a formative experience for me. I think, as you probably know yourself and as the listeners know, when we get ourselves really far out of our comfort zone, that's when we have these really exciting adventures, even if it's relatively close to home. And for some reason, I believe God put it on my heart that I needed to teach in a prison. It was not something that had been in my purview at all. People in my family hadn't been incarcerated. I don't know why. God placed it there, but I believe that's what happened. And in the middle of the night, uh, I got up and I prayed on the side of my bed, okay, God, I'll teach in a prison, but please help me get there. It was actually very hard to teach inside Sing Sing Prison. Ironically and appropriately, getting inside the prison took a lot of work, <laughs> but um, eventually I was able to teach with New York Theological Seminary. They have the only master's degree program in New York State, and they call Sing Sing Prison their North Campus. And so I would spend each Wednesday morning for a year, it was just one year, 2013 to 14, teaching 13 men. I was the only woman in the room. I was the only white, non-Hispanic person in the room. It was a cement block classroom, and it was just the 14 of us. And it was perhaps, it was among, if not maybe the most joyful teaching experience I've ever had. Because these men were so eager to learn and were so eager for joy we laughed so much in that room. Like any little joke I would crack, they thought it was hysterically funny. So who doesn't love that, right? <laughs> but but um, they just were really eager to, it was actually a very competitive program. They only, um, they had had 53 applicants for these 13 seats. So it's like some of our more competitive colleges. And um, they were just really bright and really eager to learn and just so ready to engage the text. But what it did for me was that it helped me to recognize all the people who commit crimes in the Bible and how they are integral to the biblical text. Mm -hmm. I, li I like to say, you know, sometimes I give talks called the Bible behind bars and I say to the audience, can you name people who commit crimes in the Bible? And I say, I'll give you a hint. It's the two most prominent people of the Old Testament, the two most prominent people of the New Testament. Moses murders the Egyptian, right? That's the end of chapter two. Yeah, chapter two. I mean, you, you stop the Bible right there, and it's a super short book, right? We're done. We're out. If you take Moses, lock him, you know, lock him up, throw away the key, it's over. <laughs> we still have a lot of the story. So he's a murderer. He he kills someone. He knows what he's doing. He looks both ways before he does it, buries the body in the sand. I think it's 2.11 through 13. Exodus 2.11 through 13. And, and so he is a murderer. Then we have David, who appears more than any other character in the entire Hebrew Bible. His name means beloved. That's how most of us think of him. And he breaks half of the Ten Commandments, including premeditated murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who is his own loyal soldier. So he's a murderer. Moses is a murderer. And in the New Testament, Jesus is convicted as a criminal. And Paul writes, what, a third of his letters from inside prison? And so if I think it really helped me recognize how people who commit crimes are integral to the biblical story, essential to the biblical story, and we don't just remember them for the worst thing they've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because literally after this, I'm going to teen court to be with one of my little friends mm -hmm. and, and I think she's feeling really bad. And I think that that could be real deep encouragement for her, that mm. this could be, thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, I'm mm. glad. You know, I think it's, mm. it was so helpful to me just to really, I, one time I was giving a talk just to really recognize how we all do things that are wrong. And a lot of where we end up after what we've done something wrong depends on where we were born and the circumstance we were born into. The men in my room were born into poverty. They were born into zip codes that send a lot of people to prison. If I'd been them born into that situation, who knows how my life would have turned out. But we, but one time I was giving a talk, one of these talks in a church basement, and I was talking about my students with great admiration and respect. Um, I'm still friends with them. I've got, you know, the phone numbers of three of them in my phone, you know, on speed mm. dial. They're, they're out They're out now, near all of them except for one. And I was talking about them. And this one person challenged me in the audience. And he said, you're making light of people who destroy others' lives. And I paused because, honestly, in some ways he was right. And I said, listen, I get it. 
My parents were swindled out of their life savings at the end of their life. My dad was a minister. You know, they weren't, my mom never went to college. They, she was mostly a homemaker. They were, they weren't rich people and they saved really hard at the end of their lives. The church treasurer posed as a financial analyst and took all of their money and my nearly all their money. And my mother uh, died of a heart attack. Not that long after that at 71 years old. And I think the stress of losing all that money contributed to her heart condition. So in this talk, I said in this room, listen, I get it. I know that crime can destroy lives. And this was a white collar crime, which we don't think is such a big deal. I understand that, but I still maintain that no one, no one is beyond God's mercy. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Well, maybe then uh, this is a good place to pivot into this book, just as you learned how to um, approach and appropriate the Bible uh, through maybe a prisoner's eyes or someone who's been incarcerated, their eyes. This book is reclaiming scripture in some ways through the eyes of a feminist or a woman. Uh, And so it's, it's about inhabiting who you are and where you are for this book for you, right? The title of your book, Eve is an Evil, um, specifically states that you're reading scriptures through a feminist lens. And you state in the intro <clears throat> that you are incorporating your own life story into the telling of the Bible, uh, Bible story and how this way of reading scripture is itself biblical. Right. You make that claim exactly. in the intro. Now, I want to right. stop here because I think our listeners, many of them have heard just the opposite. Right, that feminist readings or intentionally using our stories to read the Bible or God's story is actually unbiblical. So, can you unpack a bit what you mean by how your approach in this book mirrors and riffs off how the Bible itself works? Sure. You know, I'll I'll tell you, Matt. It was a little bit of a risk to talk about to use the word feminist in the subtitle, and I recognize that. And actually, the first review that I got for this book on Amazon said, I haven't read this book and I'm not going to because to be feminist is to be antichrist. Um, that person actually did me a solid because they put up one star and all these other people responded to that review. <laughs> but, but I think it's really important. I, I felt for me it was important to use the word feminist because it has such a negative connotation for a lot of people, but not for me. And I simply define feminism in the book as liberty and justice for all, including people who identify as female. Um, I've heard that feminism is the F word. I'm like, sure, if F means fair, if F means future, if F means for me, faith, definitely. (laughs) But I think that we all read the Bible with our own lenses, right? We can't help it. You know, we're reading it as North Americans, or we read it through, you know, through the lens of privilege, or we read it um, through just you know, as Christian lens, this is all part of who we are. And I'm a feminist. I believe that everybody deserves liberty and justice. And so that's what I'm doing here. But it's, um, and it's just as biblical or unbiblical as any of these other lenses. You know, none of them, like North American perspective, didn't exist in biblical times, or an Asian perspective didn't exist in biblical times. We all take who we are, but I think the trick is to notice that and to admit it and be upfront about it. So other people can recognize this is one person's perspective and I can see how it may or may not resonate with me. And so I'm just putting forward my life stories. I'm putting forward what I've learned and I'm putting forward the truth of my experience and saying, hey, maybe this might be helpful to you too, because it's been really helpful to me. You know, maybe to put it another way, if, if feminism is a, a modern invention and the Bible was written long before feminism, uh, how can a feminist approach to the Bible be legitimate? Well, I think what's new is that label feminist, right? Mm. So we have this idea of looking at the text with an eye to be fair to women. That's in the Bible, right? You know, so what does Jesus do? He defends this woman that they want to stone. You could say that's really a feminist view saying, hey, she deserves liberty and justice, Mm. but it's the label feminism that's new. And any of our labels that we put on the text, like even Christianity, we don't read about Christianity in the Bible. (laughs) That comes later. The word Mm -hmm. Christian three times in the entire Bible. So all of it. But you can see this belief in Jesus, certainly Mm -hmm. in the Bible. But these labels, those are the modern imposition. Mm -hmm. We're just using these terms to help us make sense of things and to understand it, to understand ourselves, to understand our faith, to understand our beliefs, and to understand the ways we read the text. Yeah. We'll be right back. 
let's get back to the show. Let's let's uh, do some specific then um, maybe uh, exegesis, feminist exegesis, if you sure. if you uh, if you wouldn't mind, um, okay. and maybe let's talk about the you know the title of your book is Eve isn't evil, mm-hmm. um, and so and I wonder what is wrong then with blaming Eve for the fall? Um, you know, that's kind of a loaded question, I know, but um, but most of us, you know, maybe have m- most of our listeners, I would. Th- venture to guess, know Eve as the woman who sort of brings humanity down, you know, and introduces right. original sin into yeah. the world. But um, you read her story very differently. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about your interpretation of Eve and maybe help us recover a more faithful understanding of what's happening in Genesis 3. And then what what is Eve's role in the midst of all of that? Sure. Thanks so much, Ben. So much of what we think we know, I'm giving air quotes for listeners here, we think we know about Eve just isn't in the text. It's not in the Hebrew. Like you mentioned, original sin. That word, that phrase appears nowhere in the text. People think of it as a story of the fall, nowhere in the text. And so this is just what we've imposed upon the text. And when we, why does it matter that we see Eve as the bringer down of humanity? It matters because of the ramifications for real women. Real women are told, you can't do this, you can't do that, because you're lesser, and that stems from Eve. You, you, women were burned as witches, like tens of thousands of women were burned as witches because they were descended from Eve. I mean, this is, this is serious. And even in the church today, women are told, you're lesser, look, here's Eve. It's just so amazing to me because do you know how many times the name Eve appears in the entire Bible? Two Two, you know, I mean, you ask anybody on the street, who are the two most famous women in the entire Bible? And I think they would say to you, Eve and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is exactly where patriarchy wants to put women, the pedestal, so you can be a virgin mother. Good luck with that. Or the pit, you've brought down humanity. (laughs) It's one or the other. Or people might say, Mary, the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Same dichotomy, because the only thing they know about Mary Magdalene is she's a prostitute, which also is not in the text. But getting back to the story of Eve, what we see here in Genesis 3 is this woman who is created from the rib, from Selah in Hebrew, alongside of the Ha-Adam or the earth creature. Adam means the earth creature or the earthling from the Adama, the ground. And why from the rib? Not from the head to rule above, not from the feet to be below, but from the rib to go right alongside. She is called an Azer. That word in Hebrew means Helper, yes. Um, it, King James verse trans, the King James Version translates it as help meet. But 90% of the time that the word Azer appears in the Hebrew Bible, it refers to God. Like Psalm 121, I lift mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my Azer, from which comes my help. So in biblical understanding, that's a great compliment. It's not your subordinate assistant. It's likened to the divine. So this Azer has been created, Genesis chapter 2. And then in Genesis chapter three, she is approached by this serpent. This is not a devil. This is a myth. Okay. This is the primeval history, Genesis one through 11. These are myths. And the fact that this is a myth with characters that are somewhat divine and supernatural and not like you and me, the talking snake should be a clue. Okay. This is not the world as you and I know it. So the snake approaches her and says, you know, have you heard that you, you, um, do you want to eat of the fruit of this tree? And she says, oh, we shouldn't do it. How does she even know that? She wasn't even created when the Ha-Adam was given that commandment. So it's a gap in the text. Maybe it came with the rib, that knowledge. Maybe the the, uh, Ha-Adam told her. But some reason she knows. She said, but we can eat of any fruit, but we're not supposed to eat of this fruit, this tree. And he says, you will not die. And guess what happens? They don't die. Adam doesn't die until he's over 900 years old, Genesis 5.5. That's a pretty good run. Okay, you will not die. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Genesis 3, 6, and when she saw that the tree was good for food and was a delight to make one and was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Why did she take this fruit? It's a delight to the eyes. It's good for food. It's desired to make one wise. She's thinking. She's discerning. She wants to be smart, good and evil. She wants to know ethics as she makes her way in the world. She considers all of these factors and then she takes a bite. She gives it to Adam, Ha-Adam, who was with her. Lots of our Bibles leave that out. Who was with her and he ate. He just takes it away. You know, maybe he's in the mood for a snack. No discernment there. He just, you know, eats of it. They both, they both disobey. He doesn't say, hey, stop, wait a minute. God said to me, you know, a little while ago, don't do this. 
silent as a sphinx. And she, but she has this knowledge now of good and evil, which is something that we need. She is, we need to know what's good and bad to make it our, to make our way through this world. She's been compared to Pandora, you know, the woman who lets all the troubles into the world and then there's hope. I suggest she's more like Prometheus. She's some, Prometheus brings fire from the gods to the humans and pays a terrible price. She brings ethics, knowledge of good and evil, and she also pays a price. But most of that price is in the interpretation and not in the text itself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Adam being 900 years and having a good run. <clears throat> you know, yeah, Ben's 48. 900 actually. Ben's 48, <laughs> and I feel like he's had a pretty good run. Um, I can't. In Bible times, you'd be super old. Like you're lucky if you make it to forty. Maybe we should start calling you Elder Ben. Just, just to ascribe honor, Ben. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Go for it. Let's see how that goes. I don't know. Um, you, you, Let's see how it goes. you mentioned in that exegesis, sort of the translation uh, of the word Ezer and how that can be translated as a way of uh, making Eve like a little servant of Adam, or, you know, I've heard it said that uh, she's a help in accordance with Adam, meaning right. a fitting mm-hmm. helper that, that fits right. his station, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so let's talk about translation a bit, because I every translation is an interpretation. They're, they're, so true. Right? Thank you for underscoring that, Matt. So true, yes. Yeah, and so it can be tricky. In a, f- a few places in your book, you address the issues of translation, specifically as the Bible has been mostly translated by men, men living in patriarchal male-centered spaces and translated in ways that is either, you know, I I don't want to ascribe motive or intent, but maybe unintentionally or unknowingly harmful to women. Can you give us some examples of how that works? I mean, Ezra is one, but can you give us others? Sure. So another example is, um, that that verse I just mentioned, Genesis three six, and when she's and uh, she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Uh, when I was in seminary, my professor, Dr. Phyllis Tribble, who was really the foremother of feminist biblical interpretation, we were using the Revised Standard Version back then in class, and she said the Hebrew says that he was with her, but your Bible leaves that out. And I thought, what? I did not have the resources at that time to delve into it linguistically. But since then, I've done rather extensive research on this. And I looked up that verse in every single ancient witness that we have. So the Hebrew, the Greek, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the uh, all the Targumim, the early Aramaic translations. I actually learned Syriac so I could look it up on the Peshitta, which I did. And it's in every single ancient witness but our Bibles take it out. And that has a serious implication. So what happened is Jerome in the uh, late fourth, early fifth century, he took it out. His normal objectivity and translation deserted him when it came to passages around women. So he took it out and a lot more translators knew Latin instead of Hebrew. And so they worked from his translation. And so that kept being perpetuated. But even the 19, so this was um, the 1985 Jewish publication Society Tanakh, they don't have that he was with her in there. Even the Revised Standard Version, Protestant Revised Standard Version does not have he was with her in there. And these are people who know the text like way after Jerome and were working from the Hebrew. You're absolutely right. We can't ascribe motivation to them. And I don't think they were sitting around thinking, you know, how can I further the cause of misogyny? You know, I give them more credit than that. But I don't think they took seriously the implications of how when we blame Eve alone, it's used as a weapon, really, to bring women down. And so that's one example. Another example would be in Job chapter 2, verse 9. In the the book of Job, which I love, which is a very male-centered book that contains some important feminist insights, but his wife only has six words in the entire book, 42 chapters, six words. And those words are translated in English. Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But in Hebrew, it says, you're still persisting in your integrity. Bless God and die totally different. Now, obviously I'm hyping it up with my tone here, (laughs) but still there's no indication of a question in Hebrew. It's a statement. You're still persisting your integrity. When God uses the same words earlier in that chapter, it's rendered as a statement. You're still persisting your integrity. And the word for that's translated as curse is a form is barech. It's a third person masculine imperative singular of Barach, which means to bless like Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Blessed be you, Lord God, ruler of the universe. 
so it's um, it's a word bless, and they translate it in this antiphrastically, which is a fancy word for in an opposite sense, and because and it makes her look so bad, and so she's been trans, she's been interpreted as a heretic, a nag, um, even the devil. It just has all these ramifications for ways to look as at women as bad. And then one more example is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, um, which I just so happen to have in the Greek right here, which I'll read for you if you like, um, because there's one thing I'd like to point out. Okay, and women also yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. No verb for submit, no verb for obey. There is no verb in this verse. And yet women are told you need to obey your husbands, you need to submit to them, and it's not in the Greek. Yeah, checkmate, misogynist. <laughs> now, 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 in fairness, it's in some translations, but I'm dealing. I'm looking with the ne- the Nestle Allen, the best Greek translation that we have. This is the one that scholars use, and there is this is the, this is version twenty six, also of twenty seven, yeah. twenty eight. There is no verb in there because this is the best Greek manuscript that scholars can come up what, with. What do you make of, since there's no verb in that verse, I've heard scholars say we take the verb from the preceding verse, which is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then Paul describes two versions of submission. So the women's sub- the women's submission, but then that means that the men loving their wives as Christ loves the church is also submission. What do you make of that tra- interpretation? And it, and it also means that slaves must submit to their masters, right? So if you're going to go through these household codes and you're going to buy the whole thing, it's all about submission, then we should all have slavery, you know? So I just feel like when we choose the parts that support those forms of oppression that we're on board with, maybe we need to look a little more carefully at what we're doing and whose interests are served and whether or not we're going to accept it. Yeah, that reminds me of some arguments that I hear from people who want to maintain like the submission of women to their husbands. And they often say, well, women have equal authority, but they just have different arenas or spheres of authority. And, and my comment to that is that sounds a lot like separate, but equal logic. Exactly. Matt. Exactly. And what, what did the courts do with that? They said, that's actually not logic at all. You know, that's actually oppression. And um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it's not actually equal. No, exactly. It only makes sense to the people who are subjugating other people. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. That's the thing. You know, even in the Bible itself, like whose interests are served at whose expense? We need to notice the construction of the text. If you could read and write in the ancient world, you were someone who had some money. You were someone who had some privilege. Yeah. So we need to keep that lens in mind as well. Yeah. Well, Julie, your your book uh, is both academic and personal. Uh, you share mm-hmm. some really tough experiences from your life, including yeah. r- raising a son um, that's on the autism spectrum and mm-hmm. your struggles with your daughter's bipolar disorder. It's mm-hmm. it's unusual for scholars to put themselves in academic writings. Um, I actually really love that you you share that, um, personal, vulnerable. Um, but can you tell us wh- why did you take this approach? Thanks, Christy. I, I appreciate your saying that because it really did take a bit of courage. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't feel because I don't, I don't read books by my colleagues that talk about their struggles. And, and part of it was in response to our social media culture, where we look at Facebook or we look at Instagram and everybody has these, you know, cheery, curated, beautiful lives and people walk away feeling like, oh, what's the matter with me? I've got a real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, and on the outside, someone might look at me, oh, you know, I've got a wonderful husband and great kids and I love my work. And that's all true. And yet we've got our issues. We've got our struggles just like everybody else. And I wanted to put that out there because the Bible does that all the time. The Bible puts out, you know, like David, for you know, puts out Moses, the examples I just cited, puts out the challenges that people have. But also I feel like that's how we connect. And so I share the story about my son who is on the autism spectrum. He was diagnosed when he was five years old. Um, he's pretty high functioning on this spectrum, but still he suffers socially and it hasn't been easy. And, um, and I compare him to Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. Because Joseph, as you know, one of the sons, this, one of the sons of the twelve tribes of uh, Jacob, Israel, son of Jacob and Leah. I'm sorry, Jacob and Rachel. He um, 
and the, and the beloved son of these 12 sons, who gets the fancy coat, right? He has these dreams. So he's really excellent with visions. I mean, these, these dreams where the sheaves bow down to him and his brothers already hate him because they're really jealous of him. And then he tells him this other dream where the sun and the moon and the stars bow down. It's like, stop after one dream. Now, you know, like, clue in. And, and it makes me think of my son because he's great visually. He has incredible memory. He has these gifts that I do not, sort of like Joseph has these gifts that his brothers do not. But socially, he just doesn't really clue in. And then I thought, well, maybe that's why Jacob really looks out for him and gives him the coat because this guy needs some advantages and the parent is looking out for him in ways that maybe his brothers don't. And so that really, that story really resonated with me, but also to show that people whom we see as having special needs, God sees as having special abilities. Because look what Joseph does. He goes on to save his people. Without him, they're all, they die of starvation in Egypt, but he is the one who really has these incredible gifts that God uses. Um, and then I talk about my daughter's bipolar disorder when I, in the chapter Guns and Psalms, I talk about some of the raw, honest emotions that are in the book of Psalms. And some of the Psalms really sound like the psalmist is depressed, mm-hmm. crying, can't get out of bed, I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. And, and my daughter at points has had a really hard time getting out of bed. I mean, it's been really hard, but she deal, you know, and, and we're fortunate that we have resources like healthcare and she has a really excellent psychiatrist and she can get therapy and among those things and her faith really helps her a lot. Her faith, her psychiatrist, her medication and the therapy have you know, led her to lead a really full, amazing life. But it took us a while to get there. She actually does a whole comedy routine. She's a show she performed in Edinburgh at the French Festival called Bipolar Badass. <laughs> and she talks really tenderly. She saved her medication bottles. They line the stage, scores of them, nice. you know, just to show this is what we deal with. And, yeah. um, and people have come up to her and people have come up to me and said, thanks for sharing that. You know, I know someone with bipolar disorder and it's just really good to hear that people can manage it. You know, Mm. I I don't want to quite say get to the other side because it's not a done thing. It's chronic. It's going to be her whole life. But to really be able to manage it is is a gift. And it's something that I just wanted to share because it might be helpful to others as she does in her art. Yeah, I love that because I do. I agree with you. I think that if we're able to be vulnerable, if we're able to share our own stories in the midst of sharing truth, right? Uh, it's more effective. It connects with people. It pe- it, it it gives a sense of trust uh, with the people who are reading it because they say, oh, she's a real person with a real family. Um, so I appreciate that. Yeah. It's also giving me an idea, Ben, for like a one-man gravity show. If her daughter's doing bipolar badass, I could do ADHD jackass. And maybe we could do it as like a fundraiser. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. You could wear like a jester's hat with bells on it. Oh, yeah. my goodness. It's a good thing I'm part of this group. <laughs> and you just, yeah. I'm an ex- I've, already got a, I've already got the beginning worked out in my head. Oh, this gosh. This is going to be good. Oh, gosh. And now, a word from a sponsor. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying some new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, we go below the surface of our lives so we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing. More transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, Go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. All right, let's get back into our conversation. I think one of the one of the gifts of this book, Julie, is that it lets us not feel like we have to approach scripture from somewhere other than where we really are, or yes. or as somebody other than who we really are. But we can actually, you know, whether we're incarcerated or we're um, we have mental health issues or we're, um, 
not yeah. an, a, a, a male or we're not a, you know, we're not a, a we're not, we're non-binary and we're coming to the scripture right. and we can be actually who we are and receive God's revelation and maybe even see things others can't. So it, I, I feel like your book right. then engenders and catalyzes confidence that this, this scripture is, scripture is accessible to even me. That's real. Thank you so much. That's really what I hope to do. And that's what the Bible does itself, right? It tells all these stories that, as you say, Christy, have these truths in them and are for all kinds of people. And one of my goals in the book really is to make the Bible accessible. Because honestly, I, I'm the daughter of a, I'm the wife of a minister, daughter of a minister, sister of a minister, minister myself. Yeah. So I'm like super steeped in church and I love it. But I really felt ignorant about a lot of the Bible for the first part of my life. I know a lot of your, I, I think a lot of your listeners are evangelicals or have had that experience. And so evangelicals read their Bible, which is great. Um, but I really felt, um, I, I don't know. Am I generalizing too much? Is that is that fair? No, that's fair. Is that fair? Okay. Yeah, a lot of okay. Them have um, come out of that world. I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that uh, progressive Christians like myself can learn from more conservative Christians is this devotion to Bible reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really didn't understand it. I really didn't understand the structure of it, and so in. It, like, it seemed kind of disjointed when I'd hear it in church. And so in the book, I have an appendix called Bible Basics, in which I answer the questions, who wrote the Bible, when they wrote it, where they wrote it, how they wrote it, why they write it, why they wrote it, um, in a, like a paragraph or two each. And then I summarize every book in one line uh, with key themes and key characters mm-hmm. so that people can get a grip on the text and have a framework for understanding. Uh, it's really simple, but I hope it will be really helpful so people can find the Bible more accessible. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great, Julie. Maybe maybe as we um, turn to close here, um, each chapter basically takes either sort of a section of Scripture, like the historical books, or a person like Jesus, or even books themselves, like Psalms you mentioned, or Song of Songs, and gives a... Uh, and gives sort of a read, reading that text through that lens to see what we wouldn't otherwise glean from it. I wonder if maybe to give a flavor of that kind of reading that you offer, I wonder if we, you could spend a few minutes with us uh, in one of my favorite chapters from your book on the book of Job, right? Sure, um, sure. I'd be <clears throat> most people are, are, you know, are aware of Job and his three slash four friends who screwing up and God and, and then that, that, uh, that that dark character who accuses Job, um, but but what does a feminist reading of the Book of Job offer to us that we otherwise wouldn't have access to? Sure, well, it's interesting because Job is such a male centered book, right? There are so few women in the entire book. We've got Job's wife, whom I mentioned. She just has those six words. She's not even mentioned in the in the. Um, in the ep- in the epilogue in chapter forty two when things are restored just so just so everyone's clear about the story of Job so it's about this man who's called the greatest of all people spoiler in, in alert the East, everybody the, spoiler <laughs> the paradigmatic perfect person you know and then he loses everything because of this wager that God and Hasatan or the adversary have up in heaven he has no idea why he loses his wealth his home his children, and eventually his health. He has no idea. We, the readers, know. It's because of this divine bet going on, but he has no clue. He loses everything. His friends come to him. First, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to him. They sit with him in silence for seven days, sitting Shiva, which is what you do in Jewish tradition. Shiva is seven, seven days. And they sit with him in silence. And then at the end of chapter two, they open their mouths and their valuous friends plummets because they start telling him all the things that he's done wrong. You know, you're, you're, uh, you don't know the mind of God. You obviously did something wrong. Who are you to question God? All these things that we hear people say when bad things happen to us sometimes. And then at the end, God finally, and another fourth friend, as Matt points out, Elihu pops in, I think it's chapter 32 through 37. And then God speaks finally out of a whirlwind and Job gets everything restored at the end of the book. And he gets a new shiny new family and he gets all of it. He gets twice as many animals. What's interesting is what is not restored to him is his slaves. So perhaps he has learned from the ash heap to look out more for the vulnerable. And then, and also he's silent at the end. Perhaps he has suffered. He doesn't, all these chapters of his speaking and responding to his friends, he doesn't speak anymore. Perhaps it's the trauma of what has happened to him. But there are a couple things that are feminist about this book. Um, and you do have to look hard because I get, again, you heard all those characters are all male characters, but you've got Job's wife, whom I see as someone offering a word of love and mercy and compassion, breaking forth from the silence imposed upon her in, 
in the text to offer some kindness to Job. You are still persisting in your integrity. Bless God and die. Find something that's going to be more peaceful than this misery. So that's one possible, that's one feminist read of this text. And then at the end, Job's daughters are restored, or he gets his daughters, seven sons and three daughters. That's what he had in the beginning. Those daughters are named Jemima, which means dove. May this girl know freedom. Keziah, which means uh, cinnamon flower. And may she know the subtle sweetness of life. And the third daughter is Karen Hapuch. And that's usually translated as a cosmetic container because Karen means horn and Hapuch means antimony, which is a mineral that was ground to make a cosmetic and eyeliner. Mm. But Karen is also a sign of divinity and strength, a horn. And Antimony is a compound that is always combined with another. So maybe Job is imparting strength and solidarity to his daughter. All three of his girls get an inheritance at the end. They inherit with their brothers. That's the only place in all of scripture where girls inherit with boys. Mm -hmm. I know what you're thinking. Daughters of Zalofa had in Numbers 26. Obviously, I could read your mind. That was immediately what I thought. Mm. I know that. I could tell. (laughs) But um, with the daughters of Zalofa had, they have no brothers. That's why they get an inheritance. Those girls do get an inheritance. Moses says that they deserve it after consulting with God, but it's because they have no brothers. Here there are brothers, but the girls get an inheritance along with their brothers. So perhaps, Job, I suggest that Job becomes a budding feminist. We need to look out for those girls and women. They matter just as much as boys and men. And throughout the text, he does not question his own authority. He does not question the authority of his experience, even though his friends are constantly telling him that he should. And that's a real feminist act. Because women are told, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. If you feel horrible about this, let it go. Don't take it personally. But Job says, no, I know what I feel. And I'm holding on to that, regardless of what the outside voices tell me. And that is profoundly feminist. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. Well, Julie, uh, there's so much more to chat about here. I think one of the gifts of this book is that it teaches us, I think, how to read scripture. Um, and it expands our imagination for what's appropriate. And really, as we've gone through this series, I think one of the things I keep coming back to is that for so long, so many of us had sort of this pressure or this guilt to get it right mm. and to d- extract the one true meaning from this text for all time. And I think what we're learning is, um, you know, that's not how, uh, that's not what the Bible says we should do with it. Uh, that's not how the people in the Bible treat the scriptures. Um, and there's a lot of really powerful, um, legitimate uh, transformational faith when we allow ourselves to listen uh, like the way you're listening to the scriptures. So thank you for this work and thank you for this book. Thank you so much, Matt. Matt, Christy, Ben, what a joy to talk with you. Um, thank great you. to meet you. Yeah, you thanks have, for chatting with us. Yeah, you have a website, Julie. Um I do. Is it just your name? Is that your website? JulieFaithParker.com. Very on brand, they tell me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a place people can go to uh, access other things you're doing and and all that, right? That's right. All right. Yes, exactly. Well, Julie, thanks again for being with us. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, Christy. Thank you, Ben. It's really been a delight to talk with you all. really liked her and I really liked that conversation um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a little help because okay. well, first of all I haven't really studied the book of Job like I haven't really spent much time in that in fact even when I was like a high school Bible teacher I taught the book of Job in like one day like I just did like a general overview I just never mm-hmm. really whatever anyway mm-hmm. there are some things that like she said that I'm like, ooh, that's really intriguing. And then there, I think it's like my evangelical past gets in mm. and it starts to like, it's almost like, it's like I imagine like the, the angel and the devil like on my shoulders and they're both whispering <laughs> in my ear. And I'm like, I don't know what to think anymore. And which um, one's the angel and which one's the devil? Yeah. <laughs> right. And I like, I don't know if that's just me being a woman and my own baggage from my past. Or if other listeners feel that way too when they hear stuff like this.
Yeah. I mean, I would be willing to bet, Christy, that other that others have your experience for sure. So I think it's totally. worth listening to that. Totally. I I I think that I was formed to be so the most important thing was to get it right. And then the worst thing you could do was to be wrong or get it wrong. Right. Um, and I feel that pressure every time I talk to somebody who reads a text differently than I do, mm-hmm. or um, has an interpretation that even contradicts a conviction. So I, d- I didn't feel like any interpretation she offered contradicted a conviction, but there no. are, but there are reads that I wouldn't make. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm learning to like, so the, and I've shared this before, right? Like I think yeah. the I think the scriptures actually do this themselves. They mm-hmm. they offer alternative readings. I think the Book of Job is actually a minority report to Israel about why bad things happen to good people. Yeah, and I so I think the scriptures do this in themselves, and in that conversation and even like what you're feeling christy tension the wrestling that's where i think revelation illumination enlightenment breakthrough transformation is birthed yeah 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 so i i I think that's important to name and that's come up several times you know in this series but it's important to keep naming it because i think number one that discomfort probably arises quite a bit for people with you know, that sort of that evangelical lens that is like, there has to be one right way of reading the scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the other evangelical thing about that is that the automatic story about that feeling is that it means there's something wrong yeah. with either what I just heard or the interpretation I used to take from this. And there's some tension that needs to be resolved right now or as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. And I think the other thing then, like, that I would hope our listeners can hear in your experience, Christy, is that that, that, that story is not a true story about that feeling, that that feeling of discomfort is okay. And it can, it, I know it's uncomfortable, it's discomfort, but it doesn't mean that there's something sort of desperately wrong with either this new interpretation I've heard or the old interpretation or just the fact that there's two interpretations and I don't know which one is, I don't know what I think. Like yeah. there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And that's actually okay. And like you were saying, Matt, that's the birthplace of revelation. It's the birthplace of God speaking to us. And I think there's a lot of goodness and a lot of good interpretation that comes through those kinds of wrestlings that we have. Well, I think I'm also wrestling with the fact that, I mean, I'm a female pastor, right? Mm-hmm. And there is still such baggage mm. that when somebody talks about being a feminist and there's like, she's a strong woman and she is like, she just says what she believes and sa- like that. I, I, there's something in me that's like, yeah, I love that. <laughs> and I kind of need someone to, keep encouraging me because there's this weird intimidation inside of me because I was told that that was wrong. To be that way. To be that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but, but but I, but it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I need, like, I need Julie's in my life Mm -hmm. to keep modeling to me what it looks like and giving me the imagination of that. Yeah. yeah. And permission. Yeah. And I yes. want to be clear too. I think Ben, I'll, there's a danger in what Ben and the Ben and I's response to what you said. There's a danger of us gaslighting your uncomfortability. And, and I don't want you to hear it. I don't intend it to be. And I hope it's not gaslighting because sometimes we're uncomfortable. No, every time we're uncomfortable, we need to tend to it. But, but we don't need to mm-hmm. either ignore it and just blow right past it. Or obey it, right? right? It's just a it's just a kairos. Right. So I think I think I think right. in, instead of telling you don't worry about being uncomfortable, like I hope you're not hearing that. What I think Ben and I are trying to say is, yes, uncomfortability is a part of it. Like I think about all of, mm-hmm. think about how many times, especially in the New Testament, people had to become uncomfortable in order to learn and grow and change. 
And then the people that yeah. trusted their uncomfortability meant something was wrong ended up crucifying Jesus, <laughs> for instance, right? Mm. Um, but the people who, right. or, or yeah. the people who are uncomfortable and didn't want to feel uncomfortable would go away sad. And so I think there's, mm -hmm. there's this beautiful picture in the scriptures of people reckoning with their uncomfortability, even when they don't have like great yeah. explanations or answers for it. But like, I don't know where I'm going to, I don't know where to go. I mean, you got all the best words, Jesus. I don't, I don't know where to go, but I don't know. I don't know what you mean by eating your flesh. That's weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Not, right. not sure I'm on board. I can't, I can't yeah. leave and I can't quit yeah. you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 It just shows me, it just opens my eyes. There's more yeah, for there's, me to untangle. It always has. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's for yeah. all of us. Sure. So, listener, if that's oh, you, boy. uh, you're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right there with yeah. you. Yeah. So, um, hey, before we go, uh, Christy, what's the difference between a piano, a tuna, and a bottle of glue? A piano, a tuna, and a bottle of glue. Well, you I can tune no a piano, idea. but you can't piano a tuna. <laughs> what you can I don't even understand mm -hmm. why tune that's a, joke. a piano. Yep. Yes, I get that part. Piano a but tuna. You can't, what piano? Mm -hmm. Piano a tuna. Ben, help me out. I, but you, I'm, I'm just as lost right? as you are, Christy. We're, we're gone here. Piano. Let me try it again. Yeah. What's the difference between a oh, tuna, okay. a piano, and a bottle of glue? You can tune a piano, but you can't piano a tuna. Still doesn't make any sense to I'm me. I'm so sorry. Oh. I'm like and not following. Where does the following. bottle of glue come what, in? What I don't you know. Ask me I don't know. You see where that? Where does the, the bottle of glue, glue come in? in? Oh my gosh. That was a rough one, Matt. That was a rough one. We didn't even know we what you were doing. We weren't cooperating. I suddenly no. remembered, wait, there were three things. There were three things in that. All right. Oh I told that gosh. to my 11-year-old last night at okay. dinner. And she... And did she love it? Her body physically shivered. <laughs> I think With she's... Revulsion? Or, well, or delight. It may be the same with her. I think, you know, <laughs> there's that quote by Michael repulsed. Scott in The Office where he's like, I hate how much, I hate who you choose to be. Or he says something to Toby, you know, the HR guy. I hate, I hate so much about everything you choose to be or something. I think my, I think my daughter, I think my daughter love like she has an Enneagram 8 wing. And she expresses her affection mm -hmm. by like pushing on me, like coming at me. Like last night, I hid her I hid her ice cream milkshake, and she was looking at it before, and I pulled it out and started drinking it. And she's like, "Give me that!" I'm like, "No!" And she grabs it and she does one of those raspberries, right? And it gets all over my glasses, mm -hmm. and I'm like ready to lose it, <laughs> but by the grace of God. I just gave her a raspberry back and covered her face in saliva and she walked away smiling. You guys You guys have the funniest you guys, little she walked away smiling. That's great. And it could have gone really That's bad hilarious. there. Like I was a microsecond where I almost, you know, I drive to Dodge Stratus her, you know? How how right, dare almost, you dirty my glasses? But 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 <laughs> She, she walked away kind of smiling and wiping her face, like gross, but also smiling. I realized like, this is all she wants. Yeah. She wants a strong guy mm. who will push back against her and be able to receive like all this energy and not be threatened by it, offended by it, crippled by it, or punish it. And I was like, man, yeah. the Lord has blessed me. She's my little thorn in the flesh. I've prayed it away so many times, and it just won't go anywhere. <laughs> and now, and now I just have to. Yeah, 
And now you're learning to Christy, imagine appreciate it. a girl Maybe like this in your family. Bit. It would be okay. it would it would Good. upend the Penley cart. <laughs> it would. It would. Uh, right? Yeah. That's really good. funny. Uh, anyway. It's funny. Yeah. No, there's there's part of breed that has a little twin to that. That's oh, why I love each other so well, right? <laughs> they had so much fun together. Breeze is just learning from Cece. Like she wants, I know. she wants more well, of that. I want to, life. I want to encourage it, and I want to cultivate it rather than squelch it. Um, but gosh, I don't know how to do that. Well, anyway, that's where people get stuck. All right, we'll friends. see you next time. <laughs> that's where, that's that's where, where this dad stuck. gets yep. stuck. All right, see you next week. <laughs> My little bottle of glue. <laughs> see y'all. See you all next week. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tevy. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the Start Recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. take Field of Greens for their own health. Here's Dr. Ryan Green to explain. We're like you, too much fast food, not enough exercise. That's why I take Field of Greens. The fruits and vegetables in Field of Greens support my heart, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism for weight loss. And Field of Greens promises your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. Get 15% off with promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. That's promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. Product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.